I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to the Not A Diving podcast. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our private Discord server, sign up at patreon.com slash scuba official. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, I'm going to keep this very short for reasons which I will detail in the show notes. So yeah, take a look at the show notes and I'll um, I'll write down exactly why I'm keeping this brief. On the show this week, we have Machine Woman. So Machine Woman is a really great producer. She's released on labels including Ninja Tunes, Technicolor, Pedro Manafelt's label, and most recently Delsin. The release on Delsin is really, really great, actually. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of her music. And she's just obviously a bit of a character. She comes up with these tune titles like I Want to Fuck Tech House and I Got Tech House Tattooed on My Butt. Um, and I think she is able to identify the idiosyncrasies and absurdities of the dance scene in quite an accurate way and sends them up in a way which I think is quite unusual in a scene which is very often pretty po-faced and takes itself like way too seriously, I think is, is probably a fair characterization. So yeah, great to have her on. We talk about her experiences coming from Russia, moving to the UK as a young person and eventually landing in a place where, yeah, she's making some really great music. So yeah, this was a fun conversation and I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's get into it, shall we? Without further delay, here is Machine Woman. Machine Woman, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you so much for inviting me, Paul. 
Yeah, thanks for coming. So first question, what is so great about the League of Gentlemen? Oh my God, how... (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect this question at all. You took me a bit back by surprise and I think... It was from one interview I did once and I mentioned my mother really liked it. I don't know how you got to that interview. I don't even know where. I am impeccably researched for all of these episodes. Clearly. (laughs) I don't know. I think it was obscure British sense of humor that my mom liked and she was showing it to me. And I think it was during the time where I didn't speak English. Right. Because I learned to speak English when I was 14, when I moved to UK. And I just didn't understand what the hell is going on on that show. Um, but, you know, getting to know English culture, <laughs> close and personal, I start getting some points of it. But still, <laughs> I think uh, I, I didn't expect you to ask me about that. So I was not prepared. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, I mean, it's always um always piques my interest when it comes up you know it doesn't come up that much it's it's so um unique i think even in the context of british comedy which is you know reverent quite a lot of the time but the league of gentlemen is something different right it's, it's very strange i i agree with you 100 percent um i don't watch it now i think my comedy choices have changed quite a lot so uh, i can give you an example who I'm a big fan of. Go on. Limmy. Do you know Limmy from Scotland? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> that's my kind of um, comedy now. I think that's what I dig. That's what I spend my time. Uh, especially during pandemic, he was doing a lot of Twitch streams. Mm. And he's basically, I don't know if, who I was listening, if we don't know who we're talking about, is this British obscure comedian, Limmy. And he had a limit show on BBC and also BBC Scotland. And he was streaming. He, he's a professional streamer now. I think he puts himself more as a streamer than comedian. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, every day, apart from, I think, weekend. But occasionally we get treated to a weekend stream. <laughs> and he plays games. And one of the games he plays is uh, truck driving. So he literally drives for hours and... <laughs> It, that's how I passed pandemic. It's um, really? I was watching hours and hours of Limi trucking. Wow! It was yeah, inspirational. Yeah, I mean, he's um, you said BBC Scotland, but he's very, very much Scottish. There's uh, nothing not Scottish about Limi. I think very much so, very much so. Yeah. Right. So, so you grew up in in Russia, though, right? But you you moved in in, in when you were fourteen. I didn't realize you were so young when you first moved to the UK. Yeah, it seemed like so long ago. Yeah, I was born in St. Petersburg. Uh, it used to be called Leningrad at the time I was born. Many years ago, as I mentioned, and I moved to UK at the age of 14. Right. So what was it that brought you to the UK? And what, actually, what year was that, though, to, to locate that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. that was <laughs> No, I mean, this is unavoidable, though, because this is uh, the, the, the years are a kind of key thing here that time periods are important so oh you, you you're very well prepared of how presenting and how to go around <laughs> some maybe uncomfortable questions but you can take it out of people but yeah of course i i'm not in any way hiding my age so that was in 1997 which just in case to do a math it makes me 40 years old 
uh what brought me over i think life life me life brought me over right. from russia to here okay can you be more specific because i mean i assumed you came over to go to university but obviously you were far too young to do that at, at, at that point Presumably you moved over with your with your mum? I did, I did. And I think a further we go into the conversation, it might become more clear why I have moved. Okay, so. that, that's, that's cryptic. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it's up to me to try and, try and dig in, find this piece of information. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by, by Russia and people who grew up in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, because there seems to be, well, I don't know. I don't know if this is true. I mean, I, mean, I, I kind of, I identify a, a real... Um, a really distinctive, um, I don't know how to put this, a distinctive attitude from people who I've met who, who grew up in Russia. And actually in this, this kind of period, almost everyone I know um, from Russia has, has grown up in that, in that kind of, I guess, transitional period from the, you know, the Soviet Union and all, all the awful stuff that happened in the 90s in Russia. But obviously moving at that point of life, I mean, that's a... a quite a lot of your formative experiences, anyone's formative experiences happen, you know, between the ages of 14 and 18 or whatever. So, I mean, how do you see yourself? I mean, you must see yourself as almost, almost British at that point, at this point. Yeah, this is very um, interesting conversation. And I like how you start your podcast straight into that with Russia. (laughs) I mean, like I said, I find this topic absolutely so, so interesting. So, yeah, please. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people currently, especially past two years, also find Russia very interesting to talk about. Um, But we're going back to uh, my age of 14 when I moved. Uh, It was basically like moving from St. Petersburg, big city, to a small town in East Midlands. And I remember when I arrived to Heathrow Airport and when we took... um, bus to go to town and I've seen people living in houses uh, like uh, you know detached houses or semi-detached houses Mm. and I thought this is hell like because I grew up living in high-rise in blocks projects and I was like this is not normal what people doing here this is really not normal and of course many cities have high-rises but where I went it's like tiny little town and was like semi-detached houses so that was culture shock from beginning and then because not speaking English and being put into very English school and East Midlands also depends where you go in UK you have different dialects and to me sure I, I didn't know English before, and when I heard the English in the Midlands, I was like, is, <laughs> what language is that? Um, so, yeah, it, it was, I would say, traumatic experience in some way because you kind of be taken away from everything you knew and every comfort, and you just start finding yourself into another way, so you're kind of restarting yourself. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's really formed me for the rest of my life. But coming back to your questions about do I feel almost British, I see Russia as my biological mother who maybe kind of separated from me. And I see UK, England specifically, as my adoptive mother who welcomed me. And I do feel more... Like all my friends, like I, I, I don't have friends from childhood in Russia. It just happened that way. Um, yeah, I do feel 
more associated with British culture and UK specifically, hmm. England. So you were in Nottingham, were you, when you first moved over? Moved over? Like Nottinghamshire, right. so a small town outside Nottingham. <laughs> wow. I mean, how did you end up there? What was the, the connection? Oh, Paul, you're still like digging and digging. And I have to maybe at some point admit I'm maybe a spy. <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to do that. So <laughs> that wouldn't be very spyish behavior to, uh, to, let, to let the information out at such a early. How, how many spies have you met in your life? Well, that's the thing. You don't know, do you? <laughs> I have done no idea because you never know when you meet a spy. Exactly. So, but this is pretty much, yeah, I found myself in a small town in UK and East Midlands and start learning English, start learning about English culture and my world has changed dramatically. Everything has changed. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, so you didn't speak a word, so you had to go to school without speaking a word of English, really? Yeah, that was fun. Imagine. At the age <laughs> of 14 school. as well. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that was just um, kind of hell. It was like teenage years on top of, yeah, being in school. And yeah, it, it was not fun for me. But at the same time, I look back and, you know, it was kind of interesting experience, but very strange. Like everything was strange. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Particularly there. I mean, you're you're right to say that um, yeah. the different areas of, of the UK have very... Um, very specific uh, individual cultures actually i mean obviously you have the accents but there's uh you know there's individual identities that go with them and yeah the that part of the country is i mean for 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 our non-british listeners like the um the east midlands that's like that was like hardcore brexit country like the, the east midlands voted very very solidly if i'm not mistaken for brexit i, th- I think it was a big change i think it was a big change um I was watching some interviews, some of local people at the time when it happened. I was living in Berlin. Was it two, 2016 Brexit, yeah. Brexit actually happened? Yeah. And yeah, people were just fed up with the current situation and were like, I, I don't care. I'm just going to vote against what I used to vote for. So, and it, it did change. But I, th- I think it's still a mixture, like Nottinghamshire. It's kind of, yeah, it, it was one of the, I think, one of the main areas who, drastically voted out but i think if you look at whole map of uk and the brexit vote outside london that was probably um you you see a lot of people voting out yeah absolutely and certainly outside the the big cities um yeah most places were like that for sure so um but you went to uni in london is that right yes i went to university westminster university um yeah, it was London and Harrow because it was. Uh, I did mixed media, fine art, and yeah. Just to add, how big is London? It, it was taking me one hour to get to uni and then one hour to get back home. So I might as well have lived in Nottingham and I'll be quicker <laughs> right. to get to university. But yeah, yeah, I did, I did. Right, and you did fine art. That's interesting because I mean, I always read about you being a multimedia artist, but I'm only familiar with your music. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. Tell me about the visual side of stuff for you. I think I applied to about five of the most famous art school in London because I thought, oh, I need to go to London. And I wanted to get out from where I was, like Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, because I was just like, this is not for me. I don't feel 
I belong here or maybe not like I belong here, but I wanted something more mm. and meet more people as well in the same way as what my interests were in creative art and music. Um, so yeah, I applied and I had this uh, art book where I did some drawings. It was very basic, you know, when you go to uni at younger age, I don't think it's, a, you don't really know what you want to do. You just go to uni because everyone does. Yeah, I totally agree. I think people go far too young. I think you should go when you're 22 or 23 or something like that, you know, or even older, you know. Maybe even older because after I have finished, I was like, oh, I wish I did something else and I wish I did this and now I have interest in that. So it was basically applying to art school because it was the easiest way for me at the time and not knowing exactly what I want to do. But I was like, I'm creative, I'm kind of musical. So yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of obvious choice. So I applied and I remember going to a few interviews and literally, and I think it was one, I can't remember which university, but it, it was experimental sound production or something like that. I was late for interview. I showed up and we're like, so tell us about yourself. And I was like, I'm playing in noise bands. And we're like, everyone on our course does. And it's like very exciting. I was so like, I would not take me onto the course. And that's what I thought. They said to me, like, do you want to go and see the campus? I was like, not not really kind of it's a campus and then two days later we made me an offer to go there and I was like what really but I didn't go to that uni I went to Westminster and I guess it was mixed media fine because it was a bit of everything and that's what I wanted to do a bit of everything in a creative way so I could do music I could do photography I could do painting etc 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 so and it was kind of semi-interesting but at the same time um my experience was like I'll forget my homework and then we'll have like um you know I, I forgot how it's called when people say oh today we're gonna judge not judge we're gonna evaluate and give feedback of a work like we set you a task yep and I will put down like a bag from Asda empty bag from Asda and we're like oh this is art I'm like no it's not <laughs> I literally like I I I didn't do work and my teacher's like, no, 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 you're an artist. I'm like, maybe I am. I don't know. You mentioned that you were playing in bands by the time you were applying to uni. So at what point did you get interested in music? Like, were you playing instruments from when you were young and all that kind of stuff? Um, I wasn't playing anything in Russia, um, but in UK, I remember getting into Nirvana and then also into Slipknot. So when Nirvana came first, um, I bought bass guitar. I saved like, I had like some uh, Saturday job in a bakery, so I saved money and I bought bass guitar. And then I bought a drum kit as well. Really? Wow, that must have been yeah. um, unpopular with your <laughs> everyone else in the household. Yeah, and I did it. I bought a drum kit and it was like Nottingham Drum Center and I bought this like I bought double bass pedal as well because I really wanted to be like slipknot. And I came to my mom after actual fact I bought it and we were bringing it over and I said, "Mom, I I have to tell you something." She was like, "Oh my god, what it is." So, yeah, <laughs> god. Um I bought a drum kit. And she was like, "You what?" <laughs> like I bought a drum kit and she was like, okay this is like this is not gonna happen but I got allocated a little space in a 
my family garage. So he put me there and I would listen. Slipknot on cassettes, on this cassette player I bought from Argos. And I would play badly. I don't know, maybe like not even playing, imitating some kind of sounds on drum kit with double bass pedal and not garage so yeah it was fun fun times nice wow so that was my the first playing instruments but to be honest i don't play anything but i play everything and what i'm saying is i like making sounds i don't have music theory i don't know notes uh potentially i can't you know really yeah i can't read music i can't really do music but i do music and it doesn't stop me playing music around the world maybe some kind of like um paradox and that you know i just like making sounds and if it sounds good to me that's good enough and if people like it it's okay but if we don't well you know it's okay sure i mean i think um i think production and actually i mean i'm not just production you know there's i think the um the history of the last 40 or, or even 50 years of music has been characterized by people who are musically extremely competent but don't necessarily have a lot of technical or, you know, theoretical knowledge at all, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, in my conversation with uh, Adrian Sherwood, actually, <clears throat> I mean, he's basically just said exactly the same thing as you just said, you know, and he's literally, um, you know, he's one of the people who's been most cited by my other guests as musical influence, right? So I don't think it's a, it's not a handicap at all, really. Um, mm. I mean, I mean, having said that, though, um, you know, in my uh, my conversation with MJ Cole, who is very much a classically trained person. I think basically if you are classically trained, you'll kind of, you'll say that it's good. And then if you're not, then you'll be like, well, I don't, you know, I think people kind of def- default to their own experience. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, it's the output, I think, really that matters, right? I and mean, how you get there isn't really, isn't really important. Yeah, I remember when I started making electronic music. So that was, came later after playing in bands and just being... Uh, fed up of having other people in bands and not doing what you want to do. Hang on a second, let me ask you about that. So were, okay. were, you, were you frustrated um, at the lack of direct control? Because I mean, I have to say that was my experience with bands. I was like, why don't you just do what I tell you to do? Okay, how it was, um, I moved to London to go to uni and I wanted to play in band. I had my bass guitar, so I would go on Gumtree and start looking for people wanting to have bass player. And because I was into experimental noise punk bands or something that sound maybe between My Bloody Valentine, um, Sonic Youth, Massive Attack, that kind of sound to a bit more mm. punky stuff. And I would answer some ads or I put an ad and you get, uh, you go somewhere in Camden into rehearsal room and it's usually like four dudes and you and we all want to be Sonic Youth. So you already fit in whatever you played or not. So I played in so many bands. Well, they, they, they all wanted a girl to play bass, basically. Was was that it? Yeah, Bloody Valentine, Sonic Youth. Yeah, Smashing Pumpkins, you know. Exactly, exactly. So, and I was frustrated with the fact that I was not musically connecting with people. I'm not saying we were somehow like horrible people. No, I'm saying it's like musically wasn't there, but because I was just starting to discover what's it like. Mm. Uh, occasionally you will jam and you're like, oh, it's kind of working. Okay, I'm kind of feeling it. Oh, we're going to play a gig. Okay, cool, cool. But then the more I start auditioning for bands or audition other people for bands, and I realize it's actually such a, it's almost like finding marriage. You know, you're finding someone you fall in love with and it's the chemistry. It's so rare where you musically connect 
but I did connect with two, three people. I think when I was playing more like in bands and when there was connection, it was, it was so beautiful. Like I would not know how to do some specific notes and a person more able musically, but also connection on chem- chemistry level, musical chemistry level, compatibility mm-hmm. could tell what I'm playing and it just like worked and it was all good. So it was beautiful moments, but it, it taught me a lesson. It takes so long to find someone you can collaborate with. And I think I take this as well with electronic music. I have jammed with some of the like the best people in industry. Um, some of them my friends, the people who are touring DJs, live music producers, but it's not always gelling. Even I love the music and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So yeah, it's is there's a magic to it, you know, to, for collaboration. Yeah, there absolutely is. Yeah, um, I've always found it very difficult, actually. Um, and but when it does happen, it's amazing, right? It's it's unlike anything else, almost. Yes, it, it really is. But but you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's 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 rare to find someone who you genuinely click with in that kind of respect, for sure. Yeah, on creative collaboration level. Actually, today I was reading. Uh, Wikipedia about you, Paul. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, what I read about, uh, yeah, being in bands and playing guitar. Mm. And I think anyone who follows you on Instagram or any social media have seen either your cats or you playing guitar. <laughs> so yeah, there was a there was a period where I used to pl- uh, post guitar clips, but that doesn't really happen anymore. But uh, <laughs> that was why a- not? I, I, we all miss it, you know. We we want the guitar. Back. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I mean, I think the um, the world was only good for a certain number of uh, Guns N' Roses solos on my Instagram stories. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, maybe. I'm, I'm actually, I've got, <laughs> I've got two guitars hanging off my shoe. I'm looking at them right now and I haven't played either of them for ages. So yeah, maybe, maybe at some point. That's some maybe point. I have inspired you. So world, be prepared for more Guns N' Roses solos from Paul on his socials. Some coming. <laughs> yeah. So what was the best band you were in? would you say was there was there one that was better than the others uh there was a few projects i really enjoyed i think one uh was ccsb and it was this guy i found he was very quiet and he brought computer and some i don't know some controllers of him and i was playing drums or sometimes bass and he was making really interesting weird sounds i was like okay this is we're going to direction of this where i want to be and we played actually Shoreditch Church. It was a, a festival and it was like kind of dark wave electronic festival. It was so long ago. Um, and yeah, we opened up and I was, yeah, it was quite fun. But the thing is like halfway through before we start playing, the power got cut off. And because this guy I'm in a band with, he's very uh, into his technology and he basically helped the festival to go on because he sorted out what was happening. But no one who was involved in the festival could find out where it was broken. But he's like, I, yeah, I need to save this place. I'm like, okay, off you go. So, yeah, that was a fun project. And because it was so mixed as well. I mean, like there's electronic parts with uh, live drums and bass guitar. And there's lots of effects. Like I had like rat pedal. I also have... Um, Session next to me. The rat pedal I sold. 
because I think I passed my punk days. <laughs> uh, but I have this uh, V20 Boss pedal, which is like a vocal um, loop of has effect. So used a lot of that. And after that, I I was really into Massive Attack Portis Head. Yeah. And I remember I was working in uh, Prince Charles Cinema. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And everyone who employed there, usually creative students. And I met this girl, Melissa. She played guitar. And I was like, oh, I hear you play guitar. She's like, yeah, 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 I do. I was like, oh, I, I play bass and do a bit of like spoken words that you want to jam. She's like, yeah, sure, come to my house. And that's when, you know, we're talking about chemistry. Was it like instant love chemistry musically? What happened? And that project was called Female Band. Right. And people was like female band, female band, and yeah, it was influenced by, um, yeah, massive, massive attack, Portis head, and that was really beautiful experience. But I think um, being creative, being an artist, uh, you can maybe put your ego above everything else. And I dismantle the band. I wanted to be solo, and I do regret that. Um, but at the same time, we're still friends, like me and Melissa are friends, but also she's doing other things, non-musical things, and I'm doing musical things, but not related directly to playing in bands. So yeah, but that's two projects I really like, CCSB and Female Band. And you can actually find Female Band on SoundCloud and listen to what it sounds like. Right, cool, nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you, yeah, as you, as you mentioned there, like there's, there's kind of two sides to, I mean, it's one thing making a tune with someone, but actually having a, a project which is going to, you know, potentially grow into something which is, you know, a career in quotation marks. I mean, you know, it's so hard, I think, to to find the combination. Like we said it's, it's hard to find someone that you can collaborate with musically, but then someone who can collaborate music with musically and also like live with essentially, because I guess that's what it is when you're in a, when you're in an act together, you, you spend so much time you know, once you're, you're touring hard and all the rest of it, like, and even before you get to that point, I mean, the the the, the kind of most, I guess, quote unquote, successful band that I was in, it really fell apart because we all just hated each other. Basically, we were a pretty good band, but I mean, yeah, it, the personalities were not compatible at all. But I think it's it's a lot of time. Uh, if you look at it as like, yeah, having a relationship with someone, but if you look at it as a collaboration and respect of personal boundaries and when everyone also respects the project you're doing, it's a different way. But that comes years later. Like now, if I'm forming a band, I have so much more idea what I want to do and how it is and finding someone who's on equal level and understanding. But then, you know, when you get in the band, yeah, of course, it's like it's a fun idea. You're going to go on tour and it's like you're going to be big and you're going to play like Glastonbury and like having a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, and you're all like in your early 20s and just have no exactly. idea. <laughs> exactly. So it's very different to if you formed a band now, you know, very different. But to do any projects like, you know, you, you obviously have more experience in music as well and you understand how it works more but at the time you don't so that's why people look at it as like a relationship and so many relationships fall apart and if i look at it as business project maybe it would be a very different way yeah no absolutely i mean i think yeah the fact that it tends to involve people who are young and not fully developed 
mentally. It doesn't really doesn't really help. We're still finding themselves, still developing. So when you yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You might like something now, but you have changed. Uh, like within a matter of a few like months or some experiences change you and you're like, this is not what I want, but you're still maybe learning how to communicate. And if you can't communicate in a way your other half or your partner or your business partner or your bandmates communicate, then obviously that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, the exceptions are the exceptions are amazing. I mean, I'm just thinking about like about a band like Metallica, who have literally been <laughs> they've literally been in a band since they were like 18 together, and what are they now like nearly 60? That's inc- that's I mean that's mind blowing to me. It really is. But you know, I think it also depends uh, how far you go and how quickly, because when you end up once you being recognized like Arctic Monkeys, you know, once you being recognized at something that makes money, you have people come around you who potentially will be able to offer to keep you in a place and advise you things so and well that can go one of two ways can't it it can be very bad but like, no, no of course of course yeah. but we're talking about big successful bands so i'm pretty sure it was a team coming on board pretty quickly or as soon as we've been found out and there's some kind of uh, boundaries placed how to drive a project f- further so maybe like project management for a band you know is, yeah i mean potentially i mean the, the, you know what there I mean? must be examples yeah of that happening in a positive way and, and making it making it hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good. Did you watch the Robbie Williams documentary on Netflix? The one that came out recently? I haven't. Should I? That's fascinating. It really is. Yeah, because obviously he was in take that when he was like 16 Mm -hmm. and just in terms of like you know those sorts of experiences when you're when you're super young and and you're you become surrounded by people you know because when you are successful yeah okay there's there's, there's people that come on board who are going to be professional and and you know help everyone make money because it's you know that's what it's all about (laughs) at the end of the day exactly but there's also you know so many um like bad influences too when you know the more famous you get like the more people just want a piece of you don't they i suppose you know, so it must be extremely difficult. I think. I think it's again depends what kind of team you have of you at the beginning. Who is the first person to find you, yeah. and be with you, and drive your career forward and protect you against specific elements that are very common happen in all kind of industries. Like yeah, being mistreated or being used or being signed a contract when you sign all your rights away. 
etc. So if you don't have someone to advise that or if someone promised you something that you don't understand and you're very young, but also not very young people as well who become successful had that issues too. Sure. But I think it all depends on the team. But I will check it out, the Robbie Williams. No, it's, it, honestly, though, it's, it's surprisingly good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes across yeah well, I wasn't expecting much. I was <laughs> expecting him to be a you know I was never really a Robert Williams fan but um, it's I, I heard you were a big Robert Williams fan well you know I like to take that but you know not not, not so much uh, <laughs> not so much Robbie um, yeah. no, I, I do recommend it though so tell me about your you know solo career then like in terms of moving into it and and getting to the to the um okay. to the point where you're you know making a thousand tracks in six months as you apparently do i do i let me say it again i said it in every interview because once i said that in um resident advisor do you know how much hate i go for that and people like so much hate, <laughs> so much hate. But the fact is, I never said I make good 1,000 tracks. I said I make 1,000 tracks because I literally... Key distinction, yeah. Uh, but I guess it re- it's really triggered some people. And instead of concentrating, say, okay, why can't I do 1,000 tracks? They find like, well, the problem is she's making 100, uh, like 100,000 tracks. So the problem must be somebody else. So a lot of times people try to something internally we're not happy about to place it on external um, trigger or reason. So all we hate was like, I remember one uh, comment was like, where she's going to be in 10 years time or five years time or something like that. She's still going to be making music. I'm like, mate, I've been making music since I found Slipknot in 2000, like 2003 or four, like 2001. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll still be making music, whatever resident advisor writes about me or not, I'll still be making music because that's what I have done for the past nearly 20 years. But we don't see that. We see what media writes and what triggers them. And that's what reaction created. But yeah, so again, for the point, I do make a lot of music. And at the point I had more time, I was making a thousand tracks, six months, but I never said they were good tracks. They were just my tracks and I enjoyed it. So just, I just want to say that, but maybe we're actually very good. I just, I just play myself down a bit, you know, just to keep people not hating me as much as they did on that Resident Advisor article, you know. A thousand <laughs> masterpieces in six months. That's impressive. I'm, I'm impressed. <sighs> but I can, I can tell you how that happens as well. Like people maybe don't understand the process, but process is very easy. And if I tell you how, it's like a secret and you have to sign up to my uh, introductionary offer, which costs 50 pounds. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, no, it's it's all how process, how you work. Like if you have obviously hardware, it would be in a very different way. I used a lot of software, which is very quick, p- quick process for me. And I I don't overthink. I don't think I'm going to make specific thing. I just go and like, yeah, it's like fun. It's like to me, it's like literally like brushing teeth. I you know, it, it's just everyday practice. And sometimes it comes out something nice. Sometimes it doesn't. But I just don't think about it too much. Right. That's what I think people overthink about it. And we want to think what other people will think about what we create. I never started from that point because, as I mentioned before, I can't read music. I'm not really a musical person, professional, like, or classically trained, classically trained, or I know that. So I never started a point of I'm making something and people will enjoy it because I have the skill or what have you. I start doing it because I enjoyed it and I did it for me and I still don't it for me. And if someone likes it, okay. But if it don't, also okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the 
the expectation of other people is just the worst thing you can possibly let in to the process. Yeah. Or or even trying to make something so other people will like. So if you want to sign a specific label, you will make something that sounds like that. So it almost doesn't come from it really from you, but you're trying to fit onto that label. Yeah. And a lot of times it could be good because you're fitting into um style of a label but i think it will miss like the part of the true creativity and sometimes it just doesn't connect you know totally totally i think there's um it can be a sort of a slightly delicate balance between taking inspiration from something and being influenced by something to um doing what you've just described which is just you know i'm going to make something like this which is i think intention is a big part of it you know if you go in with the intention of like okay this is going to be that then that's not a healthy way i think to, to go about things and to um you know to kind of execute your whatever you're trying to do creatively but um you know at the same time everyone's in you know influenced by everything around them you know and, and it's very possible to be you know directly influenced by something and to still uh you know be true to your creative instincts do you think is that fair yeah no absolutely um a lot of times i see when people ask for demos or we give call out like um you know we accept demos or send us music but we always say like just don't copy like our artists or don't cop just be you like there's so much time i heard this said and people just like just don't and a lot of times label owners and you can tell me if it's true um because you're a label owner yourself a lot of times label owners will like so much different kind of music and we don't want to hear like the same sound we're just looking for something else that excites them yeah totally i mean there's nothing worse than being sent stuff um where it's obvious that you know, it's been made with you in mind, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, I mean, that doesn't happen quite so much these days because I think we've been quite varied in what we've been putting out the last few years. But there was definitely a period where um, we had much more of a sound to the label and we would just get sent loads and loads of stuff of, you know, people just obviously ripping off that sound, basically. Yeah. I mean, ripping off is a bit is a bit harsh. It's a bit of a harsh way to put it. They're just trying to fit in with that sound, I suppose. And in, and to some to some extent, that's okay, I suppose. But I suppose equally, it's it's usually quite obvious, you know, the stuff which is, like I said, taking inspiration from something or just trying to copy it, you know, that's, that usually comes through quite strongly yeah. in the music. And I guess when you, I, I guess the, what you get used to after a, you know, after a certain period of of A and Ring and listening to things, those sorts of things become quite obvious quite quickly. You know, I think it's fitting in. If you write fit, it's coming from you, and fitting in when you're trying to fit in, you are changing yourself for something. That that's the difference, you know, because you can go out and find something that really fits to your label. Sure, but if people send you demos that to fit in, and it becomes, yeah. A di- different way, I guess, and I don't know. I, music is, you know, people send me some stuff, and I'm like, oh, you know, this is not for my label because I I run a label, Take Over Jazz Records, but it's definitely like I hear the sound of so and so and so and so. Why do you approach them? So maybe sometimes also people just send it to everyone, and whoever like picks them, <laughs> it will be good. But yeah. yeah. 
So, okay, tell me about Machine Room and how it how it started. Where yeah. does the where does the name come from? Okay, so I was performing as a female band, even that, but I started changing my sound towards more electronic. So I was playing bass and pedals, but when I got a sampler, uh, when I started using Ableton and start producing music, more electronic sound. And I went to play one show in Salford, and I was in this abandoned warehouse and had no roof, and I was so scared. I was like half of the roof was caved in. And half was like, and we put massive like bass system in there. And I was like, every time bass played, I was like, okay, I'm this is I'm gonna die here, like listening to this like experimental weird bass music. Um, but that's like changed a lot. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this is doesn't fit female band. This is something else. Like I don't know, it's completely like I morphed into a new project inside me. And Machine Woman, I guess it's come from Terminator. I really like Terminator. And I think it was like one of the <laughs> right. first films I've seen. And it was like very impressive how Arnie, he's very like metallic underneath, like, you know, right. the man exterior, he's very metallic. And there's just the music as well, you know, when he's driving around like in a car, with, like his red eye and or on a motorcycle or something like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's that. And also I once saw a film Metropolis. And I like that vis- vision of the metallic woman the figure, metallic, robotic figure sitting there. And also I was thinking more uh, conceptually about machine woman. It's like it's a woman or it's a human being, but woman, but doesn't have any emotions. Yeah. And making electronic music, it was kind of coming in into like computer music. So and making with Ableton a lot of stuff or like samples or uh, instruments you use, it's almost like computer makes the music for you. And a lot of times, mm. so it's like, yeah, it was, it's a very complex um, situation happened of change of the name and my music influences as well start changing. I wanted to create more darker sound, and I remember playing with Rame, and I was like, wow, I went to see oh, them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They okay. actually played with Mal Kimby at South Bank, I think, like years ago, and they had like this film and was the music was like two figures on stage with two computers were in the darkness and it was like a very like dark bass like experimental stuff I was like I want to make that this is like this is incredible and then I got to play support them in Scotland and I was just like yeah this is the heading and the change of name and change of direction and then uh, I guess I moved to Manchester because, yeah, playing the gig, I also played in Islington Mill. Now it's changed, but it was like a club, so it was like a lot of experimental techno music. I mean, the whole Manchester has a really incredible music scene. Mm. I really loved it. I, I went to some really incredible parties. I've seen incredible artists there. And that was really my more like introduction into rave and techno scene. And also, like, you know, Regis is not far away from there, you know. <laughs> so, like, really close by. And that's then I start thinking as, like, Berlin, Berlin, Bergheim. You know what? I want to move to Berlin and go to Bergheim every day. <laughs> so I did that. But I didn't go to Bergheim every day. In fact, first time, first year in Berlin, I didn't go single 
time to Berghain. I was just like, this is Berlin. This is this is like, what the hell is this? <laughs> but yeah, it was my whole thing. I was like, I'm going to go there with techno lives. In my head, I was living there. You know, it's questionable <laughs> where it lives, but yeah. And I went there. When so when what year was that that you moved to Berlin? That was 2015. Right. That was that was that was just when I I left actually. I left in 2015. Yeah. There was like peak time. I, I guess it, for anyone who moves to Berlin, it's always a peak time. You know, for me it was 2015 when I moved there. Yeah. And then I'm pretty sure if someone moving to Berlin now, it's a peak time for them. Because also the sound is very different in techno, I think, now. So it's like the peak time of now is different. Yeah. So how much time had you spent there before you moved over? I went to a tunnel festival when it just restarted. And I think it was 2011 or 2012, something like that, maybe 15. And I was a couple of times before. And I didn't really, it was not for music. It was before my techno days. Hmm. But I think it was more, my decision was influenced by present, what I was and everyone talked about Berlin and I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to move there. And I did. <laughs> and, um, are you still living there actually? No, I live in London. Right. Yeah. So tell, okay, go on then. Tell, tell me about your time in Berlin. Cause I mean, as I said, that, that was just when I'm, when I left. So I, I had very much fallen out of love by Lynn with Berlin yeah. by the, by the time I left. But I mean, obviously, as you said, like for, you know, for, for anyone moving there, it's unbelievably exciting, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, maybe right now it's a little bit more um, post-Brexit for anyone from UK moving over. That's a little bit different. I mean, it's majorly different. Mm -hmm. But before it was obviously a very different situation. It was exciting. I went there, connected to local community, found friends really quickly. I guess maybe like party scene, music scene, uh, expat scene and basically everyone in London, in Berlin who was there like for the same reason as I am to be a DJ and to, <laughs> to right. work and in a call center right. you know this is the two things so that's exactly I take these boxes or work in startup you know I did I started in call center and startup and then startup um, we had the fund cut like it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed, uh, because I was also actively making music and sending out demos. So I had like release on Where To Now Records. And then I had release on Peter Manifold Production. Yep. And then the gig office started coming in. And by the time I finished my work at Startup, I was like, oh, I need to find another job. And then a gig comes in. And at the time, Berlin was for me, I could survive on like 600 euros a month. My, my rent was very cheap and I, I don't need a lot of money to survive. Um, so one gig comes in, then second comes in. I was like, oh, I have two gigs this month and one is a festival. So that's enough for me for two months. And then it's kind of start rolling from there. And when D Dean Bryce, he was A&R at Ninja Tune Technicolor, and we connected on SoundCloud mm. um, probably like a year or two before because I'm a really big fan of Actress. And I think SoundCloud algorithm recommended me this producer called Photo Machine, which was Dean. And he still sometimes produced on that name. Mm. And I connected, I think I wrote to him and said, I love your music, really like cool and new friends of Actress. And we met actually in London in his studio and like get on. And he was like, 
do you want to do release for technical? I was like, not really. No, I don't think it's my kind of sound or anything. It's like, it's going to be fun. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, maybe. So I sent him some demos and he was like, okay, I just need one more track to make the dem- like complete release. And I was like, oh, I don't have anything, but he wants something. He wants it by the morning. Okay, let me just jump something out a thousand tracks later. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I, was say. Uh, just I made pick out, pick out one of those, you know, few hundred that you've been working exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. So I made Camille from Om makes me feel loved. And right. I, yeah. I think you know Om is the club inside Trezor, like the next door, like Om. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. that's where I used to go. That was my favorite club to go there. And Camille was the girl who was working on the door. So I made this track and then in the morning sent him a bunch of track, including this one. He was like, this is it. I'm like, really? I didn't even think you like it. And then the release happened on Ninja Tune and that's kind of like really set me off to be a full-time musician, live performer for like a few years. Mm. And yeah, and then pandemic happened. Kind of a lot of like I moved back, but also I lived in Italy for a little bit. But that's like, maybe that's for another episode. But yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean hang, hang on a sec, though. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Tell, tell me a bit more about like Berlin in particular, mm-hmm. though, because I mean, like, what's your perception of it of how it's changed? Because I mean, I mean, I think it did change between you know when you're saying when you when you first went there, even if you weren't necessarily, mm-hmm. um, you know, involving yourself in the scene. But like, what, what's your sense of how the place has changed maybe in the last, say, 10 years or so since, um, you know, you, you became acquainted with it? Um, I don't know, because I feel like I was in the passing, so I can't really say. I feel uh, I didn't give enough. Like, I'm like you, I fall out of love with Berlin. So I was like, okay, you know, Brexit happened. I just, you know, I, I don't feel cultural connection here i don't feel like i'm really have to be here so i moved out let me sorry let me just interrupt you what's the exact significance of brexit there that you're referring to i think it was maybe telling maybe i took it as a sign for me to go as well i don't know you know really? i i haven't really thought about it in that context of a detail but i kind of thought you know i've been here four years um you know because by the time i left it was like 2019 or something and i was like yeah i think i just i just leave because i'm just not really fitting in and do you mean leave as in i need to go back to the uk not necessarily uk i wanted but, but yeah in a way yeah i think yeah it was uk but when i got to uk and i got bored and i was like okay i'm going back but i stopped by italy and then i thought you know what i think i really miss germany I miss how my life was there, but no, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about party scene, but like other things. Like, you know, sometimes you appreciate things when they've gone from your life and you actually see the true value to you in things when they've gone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And by the time I wanted to come back, it was kind of, um, yeah, things changed. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't. So I, I don't know, I can't really answer your question and say how, I've seen this change. It's like there's always new people coming in and out and it's always the same idea. Someone comes in, sublets a room, trying to find somewhere to live, uh, trying to find a job, trying to find like part-time job, trying to be a DJ, trying to be a producer, get into the scene, music scene. That's what my part was. Like, you know, I'm not saying this is like everyone's experience, but how it was for me. And it was kind of ongoing, the same 
uh, circle. I think because I was in that circle. So that was, that's why it was like constant, like um, that for me. Yeah. So I haven't really, because I didn't really involve myself into Germany. I can't really say how it's changed. I think you really need to learn language and be part of a local community in more detail. Sure. And I, I, I wasn't, so I can't really say. I can't say. Okay. Fair enough. So I'm going to read you a quote from you and I want to... From me? Ask, yeah. I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask you about it. I've actually got two quotes. One is from you, one is from someone else, but I'm going to read you yours first. Okay. Okay. Quote, quote, this is an ongoing battle. I say battle because it is. Claiming your space in a male dominated sphere is not easy. Tell me about that. When did I say that? Um... <laughs> I'm going to guess, I don't know, I didn't write it down. It's from an interview. Maybe, I don't know, most of the interviews I read for you, read with you were from before the pandemic. So maybe maybe around the time we're talking about, actually. I I think it's, so what, what, what is your question again? Sorry, I just want to digest it a little bit more. I just want to know about what you may have meant and think about that stuff now. Uh, Male-dominated dominated spaces. Is that what the question about? Claiming your space in a male-dominated sphere is not easy. I guess claiming your space, that's the interesting bit, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it's uh, fitting in. And if you're walking into a room and you don't see anyone in the room who represents who you are, you find intimidation. And it depends how you feel, obviously, and how you are being brought up or how you've been told to behave by um society so maybe that's what i'm referring to and i guess now maybe with age maybe with um experience and seeing people and also seeing how things work i still feel there is dominance uh in any industry but i guess there is a way what my input, like I start concentrating on what I can offer and building my own space. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if, <laughs> this is going to sound so cheesy, if you knock on every door, but like no one answering the doors, you can give up or you can start building your own door, uh, your own space yeah, sure, and sure. your own community. So I think I see it more what I can change about it, rather what I can talk about it. So very pragmatic approach now. And that's what I've been doing, really. I, you know, doing my own label, doing my own thing, doing my own meetup, because even what I did as well, and it might not be related specifically to this quote, but I always wanted to work in a record store, mm. always. And every time I apply, and they're just like people like, no, 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 no you're not coming in here you're not working here and it's like and sometimes quite a lot of times there will be some guys who's telling me like nah do you know what vinyl is I'm like oh my god okay <laughs> you know stuff like that and I was like okay so I have two options give up or open my own record store so I opened my own record store really during pandemic okay during pandemic because you know what I life is too easy so let's make it a little bit spicy and open the record store during pandemic because that's when <laughs> the best time to open the record store it's it's a pop-up record store I did a pop-up record store take over jazz records and it was like private appointments in in Nottingham 
and it was only for a specific period of time. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. But I had whole the experience from applying for jobs in record store to owning my own record store. You know, so this is how I see now, and this is how I like to do things now. If something doesn't work, build it. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, like you know, when you were talking about you know going to you know band tryouts and it's just dudes and they want a female yeah. bass player, it doesn't sound like you were that intimidated. I have to say, that's not the kind of vibe you were giving off when you were when you were telling that. So it doesn't sound like the whole thing really yeah, no, intimidates you much at all. Is that fair? No, I wasn't because I was going there to share creativity. No, I don't know. I wasn't. But what I how I was feeling is because we were putting me in the box of like bass player from Sonic Youth. Yeah, yeah, sure. Bass player from Bloody My Bloody Valentine. And that was more worrying to me. And I see the same happening in electronic music. So if we put in like I, I can't really like think about example like now. I should have prepared more. I'm sure there's millions of examples, but I'm just saying I wasn't intimidating being in that space, but I didn't appreciate the label to put on me straight away. This is what I am. Yeah. I mean, just to, yeah, just to, just to kind of drill down a bit more on what you were just saying about how the way things are now, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right that there is a, I mean, this, I think this is true for the whole of the dance scene though. So I think there are, like very specific roles that you people are the artists quote unquote artists djs are expected to fit into and i think the the quote unquote female um the the um the the, the female djs who've become really really successful i think largely can fall into a certain category which is you know, definable in, in the same way that the male djs who are successful do too in a slightly different way. I mean, does that kind of make sense to you, that characterization? Uh, can you give me example of... Um... Let's call out some famous female DJs, shall we? Yeah, okay. No, so, like, no. you, know, Am- you know, Amelie Lons and Charlotte David, you know, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, no, and... I, I do, but I don't understand what you mean by um, we fall into specific category. What's the categories we're talking about? Well, it's, it's the female version of the big room techno superstar. Right, it's it's okay. it's almost it's very I think predictable. Like their, I mean, the way they are marketed. Let's put it that way. Yeah, does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, now I understand. I just wanted to really deconstruct your thought. <laughs> My incendiary take. Yeah, right. Yeah, your take on this, but I guess it's the same. You know, when people see changes happening, and maybe some people want to monetize in that. Mm. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, there's someone... No, it's how it works, right? Yeah, yeah it's someone who is excited playing music. I'm pretty sure Emily Lenz was playing like a lot of gigs before she got to this level. And there's a lot of DJs, like Peggy Goo as well, was playing a lot of gigs before she become what she is now. Um, and then... As I said, like we can go back to when you're 16 and you get signed and you get team around you and you get pushed and there's money invested. And I think it's the same process. And I think it's because change of time and people more start vocalizing. Maybe we are missing something. Maybe we can make some changes and changes start happening by creating your own door, creating your club nights, creating, you know, presence online and I think that's the changes we're seeing. So I don't think it's um, 
I think I think I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me. Okay, so this is the second quote I has, which is not from you. Um, um, Who's it from? It fits quite neatly into what you just said. So it's Annie Mack, and this is from this is from the introduction to DJ Paulette's book, who I interviewed on the show last week, and I put, picked out this quote to her um, because I have to say, I'm, well, tell me what you think. So she's talking about this issue, and she says, "Change has begun." But the pace is glacial. So she thinks, basically thinks that, you know, there's not not really a lot has changed, I think is basically what she's saying. And I have to say, I don't I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> I think I think a lot has changed in the last, let's call it five, six, seven years. I think it's fundamentally different for and I, I'm I'm not even thinking about established artists. I'm thinking about people coming in to people trying to break through in a um with their music tell me how do you react what my thoughts are on this i agree with you things have changed a lot i've seen a lot of changes and i think it's to do with maybe social media access and rise of platforms like boiler room and again when you're seeing someone who's representing you it kind of gives you more push to go for that yeah um so i think a lot of that um, but I do see changes. I, I, I do, I do, I, I have. So when I agree with you. Okay. That's good. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, well, okay. So the, the context is that, um, the, the, this, this kind of, um, this issue as I was, as discussed with, with, with Paulette last week was, um, I think it's very different when, cause she's, a, she's the generation older than us. Mm-hmm. Right, so she was coming through in the eighties and nineties, and, and I think like she was very involved in the industry in the nineties. And I think really there has been a a gradual change, and I think the change has has really sped up, like I said, in the last five or six years. But I think I think particularly working in the music industry in the nineties and the eighties must have been awful as a woman. It really must have been. Pot- potentially, I don't know. I haven't been in the eighties and nineties woman, so I can only talk about being a woman in present and last how long I've been involved in electronic music and band music. So professionally, like seven years, eight years. Sure. So I can, and I have seen difference, a lot of difference. Even I did, when I was in Berlin, I actually did the work experience at a booking agency, which run by a woman. And on her agency was only uh, DJs, identifies men, male DJs. Mm-hmm. But now... Her agency is more than half women. And I think I remember was kind of recommending her or talking about something about women DJs, but the conversation was not really happening. Mm. And again, it could be, I don't know, for many different reasons. Maybe it was not the time and time was just beginning to change and now it's changed and people accepted as normal and moving forward and now it's developing further. Sure. So that could be the case. Well, I mean, I think that, well, like a booking agency, that's really the sharp end of it, right? So that's like a a very um, kind of commercially oriented kind of judgment as to who um, is going to get work, right? I mean, that's that's the nature of a booking agency. So I think, I think, I think the um, the the, the change towards wanting to have representation representation on lineups like a commercial change in that way. I think, you know, the, when that became really important for venues to be 
um, making meaningful progress on that issue. I mean, that's... Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think it's media, social media driving them. Because again, when you see something, you start questioning, hold on, um, actually, it will be cool to get more women booked on lineup. And also with the DJs, I had some conversation with people. I remember playing in France for a promoter. And he was saying to me, like, there's not, it was a few years back as well. So a few years back, he was saying to me, there's just not many female DJs. And that conversation, a lot of time met with anger or some kind of judgment. And I was saying to him, like, you know, that's cool. I can recommend you a lot with different kind of sounds. Like, let me email you and I'll tell you the list and it'll be great to see you booking more women. Because it's important to have this conversation because if someone's saying, I don't know where to look, or I don't know how to find, and but you also want to be part of a change, then you have to step forward because someone is saying, you know, I want to change, I just don't know how, or, you know, it could be due to laziness because you like, okay, open the internet or go somewhere. But if you surround yourself with specific teams or people or media so you might not break through and then someone comes in and asks you this and you're like okay you know like let's talk let's open this conversation i think it's very important and i think that's changes as well people asking maybe more openly about questions maybe yeah absolutely absolutely okay so um last question or last area of discussion anyway. last area of discussion okay let's go what is people's problem with Tech House? <laughs> you know what? Um, I was thinking, would you be, w- will you ask me a question about cancel culture? And uh, <laughs> oh, we can talk about, well, actually, I would argue that this, this, um, this is linked to cancel culture, but, but carry on. Well, are you canceling me because I like Tech House? Wait, I have to say, I did interview at the Tech Magazine. And it triggered you, my quote about the track I wish I wrote. Like for anyone who's listening, this like Paul wrote on my social media, my Instagram, some comments. Did I? I wouldn't say the hate comments. <laughs> we're not hate. We're not hate. Not hate. I don't believe Paul is a hateful person. But it, he reacted. Let's say he reacted. Wow, triggered. To- <laughs> what was it? What was it? What was it? That I was triggered by. So the question, okay, so the question was, um, which song you wish you wrote? And I said, Cola by Camel Fat. And I said, <laughs> because, <laughs> because I think it's a contempt, it's, it's a bohemian rhapsody of contemporary dance music. And I think you lost your shit. I'm You're triggered like- <laughs> now hearing it again. I'm furious to hear that beside myself with rage and anger well i can only take responsibility for my own feelings and paul um what can i say you you allowed to feel how you feel you know that's that's your way but i think my comment was no i think my comment was about from it's a fun track i don't know if you listen to it (laughs) I'll send it to you after this, so you have to you have to put it into this program so everyone can listen. And there's more streams on the track. Um, it's a fun track. There's something about it, but it's also like has what like 400 million streams. I, th- I think there's something about it. I mean, that is that was not, my point. not that's not an indication of anything <laughs> in terms of its quality. I have to say, I'm going to pull you up on that. I listen, listen. I don't disagree with you, but I see things differently. Okay, okay. 
But let's <laughs> return to my original question. Why is it? <laughs> Go on. That people hate tech house so much. I can't answer for everyone. You're asking me like to tell you about how uh, how people feel in the 80s and 90s. How why people hate tech house? I think to me, it's a uh, because there is so much judgment, and because I'm in a scene as well as you are in in a scene with like techno or how it's produced music. So when you see something else, which may be more fun, tech house is fun. Um, it might be being looked down on or something like that yeah so yeah. obviously it's com comparison of like oh this is not cool tech house i mean tech house is so much different kind of tech house you know as well like but people see it as like i be for you know like and if you go to burgine and when you say oh i be for by, by the way dc 10 doing what massive techno parties with biggest djs you know really hard techno i don't know how it's going down because i think maybe it will be a little bit like uh, too much for someone who's an Ibiza, but when, I don't know. Um, but still, maybe it's also like influenced by changes. And now maybe tech house really start liking techno, and then maybe some people from techno start moving into tech house. But my your question, I don't know why people hate tech house. I love tech house. See, I think it's because there is a perception that lower class people like tech house. Oh. I don't think lower class. I think different group of people. Was like, you know, I think it's people who are perceived to be socially inferior are perceived to to like that music. I don't know. I never, I never thought about it like that. But maybe it was more to do with like being popular. So techno is like underground, but tech house is very popular. So it's more like opposite. We are underground. We're really like cool, and I go to like dark clubs where you can't take pictures. And I mean, there's definitely people go sure. and taking photos and selfies. But then again, like I think times changed a lot. There's a what you see techno is everywhere now. So is it underground still? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, you're absolutely right to say that. That's also an element of it, and the um, the kind of business techno kind of snootiness was also part of that same thing you know it's you're not really this isn't really techno it's not really underground techno it's this this kind of uh you know um mainstream version of it you know yeah and it's also like oh god there's so many different kinds of techno as well like to me are like yeah 2015 2010 like the techno like darker sound which is more slower what people listen to what people what is popular now people listen to all kind of stuff you know so like to a lot of people what i listen to would not necessarily be count as techno because i said that's not techno because that doesn't mean they're wrong it just means they might not experience that or we you know didn't look deep into that but this is what i like and i, I think maybe it's by being music producer you take more interest in all kind of genres from all different ages and you also experience that so you're talking about living in berlin and what up to 2015 so your experience of techno is very different to what it is like now to people living in berlin i mean i have been to a club since 2015 <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i understand that was not my point but yes you 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 get me yeah absolutely listen this has been really fun thanks so much for uh, coming on the show it's been great yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And to anyone who's listening, please go and check out uh, Call It by Camel Fat. It's Paul's favorite track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going to go and listen to that right now. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that was Machine Woman. 
what a fun conversation what an interesting person some yeah great to get to dig into some of that detailed stuff from her backstory which i don't think she's talked about too much in interviews before and um yeah tech house hey what about that tech house Anyway, as I mentioned at the top, I need to keep this brief. Remember to follow the show wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the Spotify playlist as well. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist. And join us on Patreon to get rid of the ads. I will see you back here, same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.